Welcome to the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast from the Institute of Transportation Engineers. Each month, we'll bring you conversations with thought leaders in transportation on the future of the industry. joining us. I'm your host, Bernie Wagenblast. This episode of the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast is sponsored by Trihydro. Our guest this month is Kelly Coiner, the founder and CEO of Innovation for Mobility. We're going to be talking about the state of AV development and deployment, as well as Kelly's recent work on low-speed AVs in transit. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us on ITE Talks Transportation. I'm excited. I've been waiting for this for a long time. I think always the best place to start for those who aren't familiar with you is to tell us a little bit about yourself and innovation for mobility, if you would, please. Five or six years ago, I left the transit world to go into the AV world. And the reason I I did that was not so much because I loved shuttles with cute names, but (laughs) it was because I felt like there was a real need to bring innovation to transit so that we got more people into shared mobility that was cleanly powered. And that sounds pretty lofty, but it has a lot of really practical implications. And the first of which is that there wasn't anyone who was really working on the question of how do we actually do this? So I started Innovation for Mobility and it was set up around one client, always a big mistake. (laughs) Um, That client was looking for help on how to set up a automated vehicle system, a fleet of uh, to take care of transportation on a large campus out in the middle of the United States. And we learned a lot in that. We learned a lot about what the infrastructure needed to be, how to have charging, how to help a client understand that low-speed automation could mix with people. But the one thing that we couldn't overcome was that they wanted to have 30 or 40 vehicles in this fleet and we weren't ready yet. So we retooled and we focused our energy on how to do more pilots that were at a smaller scale, how to develop the tools that you need to make sure that they're safely operated. But most of all, how do we help communities understand what the power of automation is in the context of a number of other emerging technologies? So that was the first chapter in the story. Fast forward and focus on what I'm doing now, which is that I still um, am focused on what a community's need with respect to understanding automation, but I'm really focused on how do we forge those partnerships between the public and the private sector, between the technology companies and the mobility service providers, and frankly, funders who are interested in improving shared mobility and the quality of life in our communities. You talked about when you first got involved with this and going back to say 2016 or so, probably around the time where you were first getting involved with AVs, there were these wild projections of talking about how many automated vehicles, autonomous vehicles would be out there on the road. I think there was one estimate of some 75,000 vehicles would be on the road by the time we reached the point we're at now. And this was before COVID and no one had projected that at the time. 
But you've said we're at an inflection point in transportation, and hopefully I'm quoting you here correctly, potentially more transformative than the advent of the car, where we can make communities better for people. Do you still see AVs as part of that equation? I still see AVs as part of the equation, but in the context of a lot of other things. In 2016, we were really, I don't know, I like to, I like to call the sort of projections the hype about hype, um, <laughs> because they really came from one, one or two sources, and they were really focused on driverless cars and not on automated transportation, which is a big difference. I love to think about sort of things in historical context. You know, we called the car a horseless carriage, and we were calling autonomous vehicles driverless cars. And really, neither one of them worked very well, right? (laughs) So where we are now is the shuttles had advanced probably faster than the cars had in terms of a, a workable model. But like all forms of shared transportation, COVID just stopped everything. You know, no one wanted to ride with somebody else mm-hmm. or there wasn't enough service and they couldn't get you to where you wanted to go. But on the way to the end of COVID, we had another transportation problem that really became a challenge, which was the whole supply chain logistics. And so what we saw during COVID was this really intensely creative, productive time around how do you use all these different types of automation to move the things that we need vitally. So in some cases, it was an example like shuttles that have been being tested to move people in Florida were used to move COVID test results in from the Mayo Clinic instead. But the bigger ones where this is sort of profound changes were over-the-road trucking, going long distances, going short distances, going super short distances and delivering things at the very end of the line, both to the curb, but also onto the sidewalk. When you talk about projections, I think people kind of almost love to hear about projections of what is going to be coming and how many and how can we prepare for this. We talked about those projections back in the middle of the uh, the 20 teens and and how they may have been off a bit, but looking ahead, do you think, is it valid to make projections as to what we might see five, 10 years down the road? And how do we rely on, on those projections? That's a sort of really interesting question. Let's, let's reframe that question a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think that what's the bigger question is what do we need to do to make sure we get really widespread deployment of autonomous vehicles. And there are a lot of things, but that nothing is sort of predetermined. When it comes to projections and metrics, clearly the investment community sees a huge potential in automated, electric, connected vehicles. The initial public offering was huge a week ago. But those projections are really focused on the value of really narrow applications. How far can I take this in this particular context? I think that the more interesting questions are, what can we do to change things up so that we get widespread deployment across all these different kinds of communities and we get these benefits? And nothing is really predetermined on that. Let me paint a picture for listeners since we don't have a visual. 
My family is from Texas. My great-grandfather was a pharmacist in San Antonio at the turn of the century before last. And I found a Studebaker ad for vehicles being sold right by his pharmacy in San Antonio. And on the same page, there are pictures of electric vehicles and there are pictures of horses and carriages and stables, right? Mm -hmm. And this is before the internal combustion engine took priority, right? So, you know, there were a series of things that happened that changed why did electric vehicles not take off then? And I think the biggest reason is that there wasn't the infrastructure to support it. We didn't make electricity available to people in their houses and charging for vehicles and the like substantially until 20 or 30 years later. Um, and in the meantime, we had internal combustion engines that could get gasoline or put it in a can and travel not only around a city, but from place to place. And that was a huge difference. I'd be much more interested in putting my bet on what we could accomplish if we did certain things. One of the things that you've been involved with was an evaluation of low-speed AVs in transit. Tell us a bit, if you would, about what you found and what would you advise transit agencies looking at deploying AV technology? There's something to the model of starting small and starting slow on things. And low-speed automation answered a, a first question, which is that by its very nature, it was slow and it was safer, right? And it was also much more manageable. And so I worked with the Transition Research Board to set up a study to look at the low-speed automated vehicle pilots that had already occurred, things that were fairly substantial. Now, there had been literally hundreds of what we call petting zoos. You can go and touch an AV. Um, that actually is pretty cool. It's cooler to ride in one. Mm -hmm. But what we were really interested in was figuring out how many people were planning these pilots, how far along were they, and then in cases where they had actually completed a substantial one, a year to three years, or were somewhere fairly far along, what could we learn from them? And so what we did is we looked across North America. We found several hundred pilots that were in different phases of planning and implementation, much to everyone's shock, because most people told me they're only one, or they're only two, or they're only three. And what we learned from that was a series of things about how to set it up, what the limitations were, and what the potential was. And in putting that together, what we found is that there were no resources for transit agencies to use um, as a, a guide to how they might work. And so we in addition to looking at each one of these um, scenarios and each one of these, in addition to looking at the various pilots, we also put together a practitioner's guide. The study was published, which was actually kind of cool to have something published by the National Academy of Sciences Press. Um, it's called Low Speed Automation and Transit. What was really cool about it was being able to see the trends that were emerging in this area. And one was that this move from just doing these little demonstrations to doing longer term pilots. Another was the method in which 
people were testing these, that they were starting with one application and then moving to a second application and moving to a third application. And the really interesting thing, which sort of led to the next piece of work that I've been doing, was that even before the pandemic, we began to see people focusing on how infrastructure could make it these low-speed automated vehicles much more viable in transit. And so my favorite example of that was in Mountain View, which is the home of Google X and Waymo. The city officials there were already planning a dedicated lane to move from the area where Waymo's operating on the campus to bring automated buses from that area, that high-tech area, bring them into the downtown and connect to transit. So it's a really powerful example of the sort of trends that we were doing. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment after this brief timeout to hear from our sponsor, TriHydro. TriHydro Situation Data Exchange, or SDX, is a transportation data sharing platform that allows DOTs to share connected and autonomous vehicle messages with drivers on the road. The Situation Data Exchange now features an Alexa-enabled traveler information skill, allowing drivers to learn about road conditions, closures, and other situational data through Alexa-enabled devices. The new traveler information skill is just another way TriHydro and the Situation Data Exchange are supporting state DOTs in reaching their Vision Zero goals to eliminate traffic fatalities and severe injuries. Learn more about the Situation Data Exchange by visiting trihydro.com forward slash SDX. We're back with our guest, Kelly Coiner. Kelly, you talked about getting to experience to touch some of these pilots that were out there and even better being able to ride on one. I had a chance to do that down in Jacksonville, Florida, several years ago. Why were people so interested in deploying these low-speed applications? And what do you think is going to to come of that? I think that people had a whole host of reasons why they wanted to do it. Some of them wanted to be the first. In fact, that's the most common when when I've worked on deployments They're like, okay, but we want to be the first doing something, right? Mm -hmm. And that sounds a little bit silly maybe, but it's really important because there's a huge economic development component to this. But from a transportation perspective, there are people who are envisioning better ways for people to get from one place to another. So two really wonderful examples from early on, actually three. One was the use of electric golf carts that had been made autonomous to move wounded warriors at Fort Bragg. The reason that the sort of transportation reason for that was that these wounded warriors were not going to their appointments. They had to ride a long way around and they couldn't drive themselves. And so they use the autonomous vehicle to get them to their appointments for mental health and their appointments for job counseling and the like. And so that was kind of cool. In Las Vegas, Nevada, they were moving people around at a big loop in the entertainment district. So it gave high profile and it, um, it's where people wanted to move. It wasn't very many people moving, but I love the, the bright lights of the Vegas Strip in the background. And then in the case of Arlington, Texas, they're the largest city in the country without a transit service. 
and they wanted to find ways to move people without using their cars. And so they've been experimenting with a variety of things. And so they've gone from this first case of moving people to and from a football stadium to moving them around an entertainment district. And now they have a small fleet that they're using to move students, including those who have disabilities around a university campus. These are real transportation use cases, real reasons people need to get from one place to another. In general, I would say that the most common application that people are using is to get people to be able to move from where they got out of their cars to getting to healthcare or to education services. As this grows and as we find ways that they can move a little faster, there are many more ways that they could be used to get to transit, to get home, to do quick grocery shopping, to pick up deliveries and the like. But those those are sort of the beginnings with uh, low-speed automation. In the month of November 2021, infrastructure has dominated the headlines in the transportation world. And there's been a lot of talk about what that's going to mean. I've been seeing stories about bridges and roadways and such, but I haven't seen a lot about how that all is going to relate to AVs. How do we get infrastructure ready for AVs? And what do you think is most important to do that? The most important thing is to have sound infrastructure for the vehicles to travel over, right? We have more than 40% of our roads and our bridges that are in just terrible shape. Even though I might look out and say, I wish my street were repaved, my street is basically fairly functional. There are lots that are riddled potholes and cracks and, and the like, and there's no way for an AV to operate on them. But if we just make it about that, we're not going to move very fast on it. So a lot of people talk about infrastructure readiness, like when they're actually available, then we can, we'll have the infrastructure that's ready for it. I'd rather think about the ways in which infrastructure can accelerate gaining the benefits from AVs. Um, You can clearly get benefits from an autonomous vehicle being used by the freight business or by a part of the transit business. It's interesting. The big monetary savings are in decreased property loss from vehicles crashing into each other or into other things. If you could be mindful as you're putting infrastructure together to make it so that these things connect together so that people have confidence in the safety because there's redundant, we call them redundant systems. That just means doing it more than once. Then there's a whole, there's an exponential opportunity to go to wide scale deployment. You asked, like, why would someone want to have a transit application of the AV? One of my absolute favorite questions to ask people back in the day when I got to go and ask people generally was, well, why do you even care about this? Much to the dismay of my my boss in particular, or people hosting a podcast uh, or hosting a panel, really, she's going to ask every person in the room. So I won't be able to do that today. But the answers that we would get would be, I want to be able to have my parents who are elderly be able to get where they need to go. I'm getting older. I want to be able to get where I need to go. A large number of people who would say, I have an adult child 
who can work but can't get to work because of a disability. Often they're on the autism spectrum. All of those applications rely on infrastructure to make it happen. You can have a fully accessible vehicle, and if you can't get to it because you're blind or you're hearing impaired, you have cognitive issues, or you just can't find the thing, it doesn't work, right? So the other thing I think that even maybe even more exciting is that, you know, this infrastructure bill is also tied to our climate change goals. There's a huge investment in electrification and the power of combining electrification with automation is huge for climate change. Um, So it's there, even if we don't say it out loud. And then sort of last but not least is like when people ask me, why do you care about it? It's for me, it's a safety issue. I spent, more than 30 years trying to fix humans who run into things in cars. And I'm tired of it. I'm a mobility mama, literally. I have kids who are young drivers. I also know that until we move from really narrow use cases of moving something down a little stretch of highway or a long stretch of highway, and we have a lot of autonomous vehicles safely deployed, we're not going to get those safety benefits. Kelly, we've talked a lot about what you've done, what you're doing. What's next? I am right in the middle of a year-long set of reports about infrastructure and autonomous vehicles. So, you know, to me, this couldn't, like, be a better time to be working on this. And so I'm, I'm talking to, you know, the best researchers and the best in the AV space and the people who are working on infrastructure, like all of the ITE members to find out, you know, what do you need to make this happen? And so it's a, it's a really cool series. And the nice thing about it is that it's not trying to necessarily come up with the definitive answers. It's set up to get us a path to having those answers. So that's what I'm doing now. I'm often asked, should I spend my money on autonomous vehicles or on um, micro mobility or on mobility on demand? And my answer is yes. (laughs) (laughs) All of the above. Right. Because they're a system. If you take automation by itself and you don't combine it with accessibility and connectivity and electrification, and most importantly, that it's shared, whether we're talking about freight or transit, then we're sunk. Um, And if you combine those things, then we get the best possible outcomes out of our transportation system. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of our time, but we want to thank both our guest, Kelly Coiner, the founder and CEO of Innovation for Mobility, as well as our sponsor, TriHydro. Kelly, Thanks so much. Thank you for having me.